Feel This with Frank and Jess. Welcome to Feel This, a series of experiential conversations between me, Jessica Olber-Singleton, and Frank D'Amato, where we explore trauma, healing, and awakening through the lens of relationship. Hello, and welcome back for part two of last week's episode. Enjoy. something else you said a moment ago that felt really sort of pinged my system and and got me excited. You said something about disidentification. And it's interesting how that word sort of always sounds to me like a negative thing, but I know it to be a very positive and good thing. And in the moment when you said it, And I had that thing that comes forward that's like, that sounds bad. Disidentification. It sounds sort of like dismissal, right? And I know that's not what you were saying. But the image that came to my mind that suddenly felt really potent was, so I don't have children, but I have, like my brother has children. I have friends who have children. One thing that I know to be very important when you go into a space with children, especially young children, is to see them as they are, as autonomous individuals. And when I do that, I'll just speak for myself, it might be that I walk in and that kid wants nothing to do with me, but they're maybe watching me from the other side of the room. Almost always, you know, by the end of it, although it it matters not whether this happens or not, but oftentimes the kid will want to come and give me a hug. And I have a friends who have said to me, you know, when their uncle, you know, when so-and-so walks in, he makes them give them a hug. He, he bribes them into giving him a hug or having an interaction. And that to me is sort of when you are projecting your stuff onto something so much that you can't see it for what it is. You just can't allow it to be what it is. And that to me is like, what's really, there's something about that image of I walk in, there's a small child and I need that small child to come and give me a hug, right? That, that is not about that kid at all, but being disidentified saying you are you and I am me allows for the connection to come together and, and, and for, for everyone to sort of be themselves, which is weird to think that that's happening within our own systems. Mm-hmm. Kind of strange. Yeah. As I was listening to you, I was feeling, it was kind of an excitement, but there was a kind of a rousing energy of me, maybe even a little bit, I don't want to, I can say it's in the, in the category of anger. It's not really angry, but it's a little bit like, so I'll, I'll kind of just go into it and we could pick it apart, but it was this sense of when you were saying, 
talking about, you know, these, these, you know, certain people, uncles or who have other people who come in and do this kind of projection onto these little kids. And the voice that came into me that was like, yeah, that is what's happening everywhere all the time that we are unconsciously. So I, I'm going to speak to try and speak to this in a way that's not like, I have a part that's here. That's like worried that I'm going to be putting myself in a superior place in some way. So he's a little worried about that. I'm just going to, I'm acknowledging that and understanding, but I want to be able to say what I'm saying and I'll, I'll just kind of let it, I'll let, let the, let, let the dart hit the wall where it needs to. So that flash came to me like, Oh, wow. That's what's happening all the time. And we've talked about this where, where we're as human beings, we are projecting all of our stuff onto other people all the time, right? Like that, uncle is now enacting that child into his own personal, uh, I wouldn't say it's his uncle, I don't know who it is, that person who is offering the bribe or that that moment mm-hmm. is is acting out a internal mapping onto that little kid. They're not really allowing, they're not really seeing that little kid for who they are. In the same way, we are not really, when we are reacting towards each other without pausing to really see what's happening inside us, we are also in reenacting these dramas inside ourselves. We are seeing other people as we're, we're living on the drama triangle, right? Other people are doing this to us and we're, we're, we're fighting back and all this stuff. And we are in those cases, not really seeing each other as we are, right? We're, we're seeing, we're more reacting to our own internal mental states and emotional states that we're placing on other people. And for me, I've worked at this so much. This has become my life dedicated path, right? Other people are not doing that. And they're, they're living their lives. They're doing their airplane pilots or whatever the heck they are, right? They're, they're not focused on these things. And so these things are just happening. They're not paying attention to them necessarily. So for me, it can feel what? Hmm. I'm not sure if there's a sense of loneliness to it at times or, or something like that. But I think my sense is that there is a sadness in me around that. That, that I think that's, if, if that's probably the deepest truth, that there's a sadness at how much we don't really see each other and how it takes a lot of work to really see each other. And then that sometimes... Sometimes it takes a lot of work because the work is I have to take, I have to really look at what am I projecting onto you? How am I seeing you? Right? What screens am I putting onto you? And there's only so much that I, only so much of those screens that I can actually remove because at the end of the day, I'm still seeing my mind. Even when I look at you, Jess, I'm looking at you here and what I'm seeing is, you know, little waveforms of light that are happening as electrical signals in my mind. I am seeing my mind as I look at you. And, and as I hear you, I'm hearing my mind. I mean, that is at a physiological and material level, always true. So there, there is a limit to which I can actually say, I really see and hear you, right? There's a limit. However, there's a lot, there's a big place where I, 
the, to remove the screens of perception, to become aware of the narratives and stories and perceptions I'm placing upon you. And the more I become aware of them and, and open up space where I can really hear you and see you more as you, and that is felt by the other. And I think yes. you, you can probably affirm that, but I'll stop there. Yeah, so much, so much in there. So right there at the end, so I'm, I'm feeling there's a power here for me, an importance, a value. I feel deeply grateful to be in a space with someone who values and sees what we're, you know, you're, you're talking about something that I see, that I value. And oftentimes I, I think, you know, I will, I'm just, I'm seeing everyone the best I can, knowing that the majority of it is mirror or some form of distortion. And that doesn't feel, that feels really good to me. It feels really good to me to acknowledge how much distortion is naturally always going to be flowing between us. I can barely see myself. And that brings up the other thing that really came into my awareness as you were talking was you can only love and accept others as much as you can love and accept yourself. And what I'd been thinking in the last, I don't know, it's kind of been coming in and out of my awareness the last couple of weeks is I frequently feel, I don't know that this is actually true, but what I've been noticing lately is how often I can love and accept and, and touch into compassion and curiosity for other people. And then believing that I'm not doing a very good job of accessing it as well toward myself. So what suddenly hit me as you were speaking was that the opposite, I suddenly realized maybe I can access the love and compassion I can feel toward the other, toward you. Like I can celebrate you, Frank, and see you know, things that are amazing about you much more easily than I can about myself. So it just felt suddenly like, well, that means I know how to do it. I just need to kind of figure out how to turn it toward myself. So I'm going to stop talking now because I'm in a bit of a corner. Yeah. Well, I have one part that wants to kind of like help you sort all that out. But then there's another part that's like, oh, I know if I can get caught in the corner with you. <laughs> it could get a little uh, interesting in that regard. And there's a will, but there's a kind of a total open willingness. There was a sense of me hearing from the part of you. I heard the part of you that you said you labeled as a, you know, there's a part that judges you're not doing a very good job. Right. And so I, I heard that re at, at being compassionate towards yourself. And I heard that very clearly as a part, and I heard it very clearly as to, in my mind, the whole idea of, are you doing a good job or not a good job? It's a completely, I can, that, like, that's completely not a real thing, right? So, and how do I explain with that? You know, trying to, let me try and explain for the listener what I mean by that. That all judgment in the, by its nature 
is baseless. It has no, it, it is a creation of mind. It does not exist. Good job. Are you doing a good job or not a good job? There is not, nothing in the physical world that exists of good job or not good job. It is only that our minds create this thing called good or bad. Are we doing a good job or a bad job? Are we doing this or that? And that whole process is completely false. It, it may have value or not to a system at any particular moment, but it doesn't refer to anything real at all. So that's very clear to me, right? So when I hear that, that it's like a little light goes off. And, and, and something in me was also clued in that just Jessica, the white, the bigger Jessica does know that because of the way you phrased it, you said a part of me believes that, right? So I can hear the distance between you and the part that believes that, which is reassuring to my system. The secondary level, there is something in me that, that just knows that. And then I guess it wants to move towards that and really just shine that light of like, okay, like we could hear that belief, but can we, can we put the light on knowing that that's not a real actual thing aside from in your, in your mind and the parts that have feelings around it, it sure it's a, it's real to them, but it doesn't refer to anything that's actual, which is a really important place right? Because I think our first stage of suffering is that we don't know that that's true, right? We, we really believe, the parts really believe we're good or not good, good enough or not good enough. And, and that's because there's a burden belief that's been taken on from trauma, like we talked earlier, where that's where the, the, the experiences of too big emotion that we can process got categorized under, I'm not doing a good job. I'm not good enough at this. And it got, then that that reality that starts to feel like a real thing because we feel real emotion inside of us. That's right. We actually have these neural pathways that are actually there. That's real, right? <laughs> like there's a real neural pathway in your brain that's calling these things not doing a good job of it, right? And it's that that's a real thing in your, you know, in your mind. <laughs> but but it's not referring to anything real outside of it itself. And that's so important to know. I think it's so important to know. Sometimes I, I'm not sure how that lands on any, sometimes that might not be what any particular system needs to hear in any particular moment. But I think to have the ground of self, it feels so important. It's kind of like, to me, it's like I have a child and the child has a nightmare. Child wakes up from the nightmare and is in a panic. And the first thing I want to let the kid know is that the nightmare isn't real. Now, it's not me to say that I'm not going to sit there and love that kid and rub his back and, and tell him, oh, honey, I know it's so scary. And what does that feel like? I, I, I'm going to do all that because his feelings or her feelings, that child's feelings are real. Their feelings are real. But I also know that the nightmare isn't. The thing that it's referring to doesn't refer to anything but itself. And that's so important, right? So, so let's just start from there and then and then, so it's not using that as a dismissal of the emotion, but it's including that in the soothing of what's happening. Yes. So that last thing you described about the child waking up from the nightmare, there's a, there's a tarot card for that. A soothing yourself, you know, soothing the parts of you that are coming to, right? That are like, 
oh no, you know, that have just kind of woken up yeah. and are seeing things a little bit more clearly for what they are. It's the nine of swords. Okay. <laughs> yes, the nine of swords. And then the 10 of swords, just because it's kind of fascinating, shows some face down dead with 10 swords stuck down their spine. It's a very intense and it's the end of the story. So the nine of swords, we wake up from the story, you need to make ourselves a cup of tea, you know, put a warm shawl around our shoulders and just soothe. But the 10 of swords is like, it is, it's really like clearing out of the system. Like we really understand it. We're not even going to have that nightmare anymore, which I just think is kind of fascinating. The completion of the the 10, the, the swords suit. So that was, that was felt exciting and, and fascinating. Well, I guess a couple of flashes. One came a memory of a, a client I worked with years ago around a recurring nightmare. And this is coming, this, the, the, the piece about the recurring nightmare fits into the category of talking about the need for completion more about yeah. the nine, was a little bit more about the nine of swords, ten of swords. Absolutely, I was pulling them out of my deck here just because it seemed fun. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. And so this actually this is kind of towards the beginning of my career in terms of working with individuals with IFS, and and so someone was telling me that they had this recurring nightmare that they were, you know, and it was keeping them up at night. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, why don't we why don't we just treat this like any other IFS process and just go into the seat, go into the nightmare. Now, and what I understood was one, there was, I already under, had the felt sense of incompletion. Like the dream would start, would go in a direction and then something would happen and then the client would wake up. The idea is that, and this is the same for all trauma. There's a place where the emotional, the amount of emotional energy becomes too much for the system. And there's like a circuit breaker that flips right? Too much energy, circuit breaker flips, shut down, or, you know, wake up out of the dream, you know, turn this off, I can't deal with this, shuts it down. But the core affect of what's in there is still not processed. So nothing, it doesn't get released, the energy stays charged in the system. And it, it comes back around the system is wanting for this energy to be expelled. So it's going to bring it back forward, hence the recurring, right? It's going to keep recurring the experience of this fear that's happening in the in the scene until it gets for it to have a full sense of completion. So what we did in the session was we walked through it, begin, begin to go into the space, kind of like a meditation, kind of journeying space. Let's go into the, into the dream. And now I'm guiding the client into being into self energy, meaning to be open, to be accepting, to, to, to not be terrified of what's happening and going really slow so that we can kind of go one step at a time. And as we walk through the steps, we got to the place where the dream typically ends, but the client was able to, because they were with me, they was feeling safe, they were, you know, and they were feeling open and curious. They were able to complete the steps of the dream, which went a couple of steps for, further down the line in the dream. I'm not going to go into the content of the dream <laughs> exactly, but it essentially moved to this place of disconnection and grief. And we were able to be with this, you know, basically the client was grieving over their father who they were getting disconnected from in this elevator, but it would, but by allowing us to go to the next step in the dream and then actually feel the core feelings that were underneath it and explore it with openness. And the client system got to see that they could explore this dream this way. And then there was, there was no more dream after that. The, the recurring nightmare went away 
right? Just and we didn't like solve any great mystery. It didn't. There wasn't like this huge thing. I mean, yeah, there was a little stuff around their relationship to their father and feeling disconnected, but it wasn't like oh, we you know in this Freudian thing we figured it out. And it's, no, all we did was just bring a kind of open curiosity and calmness to it and explored the emotions that were there until they were satisfactorily explored. There was just enough energy of presence to those emotional states that got witnessed that didn't that didn't need to to be called attention to anymore. They they got heard. What was there got heard and our minds what they're holding, the trauma that we're holding in our bodies from our own life experiences but also from previous generations which are in our bodies those things are going to keep coming forward until they are witnessed and I believe this is a fundamental principle of the universe that that anything that comes alive comes comes to life has this wanting to be seen to be connected to consciousness wants to be witnessed there's something very fundamental about that and when there are these experiences within us that are repressed they will keep coming forward they will make themselves known and then this becomes known through our bodies when we have problems with our, our back pain so much caused by repressed emotional space physical conditions all so many mental all if you look at all of the mental health issues all of this underneath it is impacted emotional states that haven't been processed and when they do the body returns to a better state of health much better state of health and our emotional state of health. So I'll stop there. Yeah. That's really powerful. In particular, the thing that somehow feels really powerful and beautiful to my system is because I'm on the outside, because I am not the person who is having the nightmare. So what I'm seeing, I'm seeing myself, you know, in the sense that you were able to help them manage the nervous system so that the circuit breaker didn't flip. And that's something we, I'm not sure it's, it's something we don't know how to do. Most people don't know how to do that, right? They don't know how to manage their own and, or it's something most of us need support to do because that's part of oftentimes what has caused the impaction to begin with is the lack of safety that if this thing happens, I will lose the people around me, right? So both having someone, you know, maybe you, maybe someone's therapist that can be a calm presence who, you know, it's like I got to witness a couple of births, at-home births, and how often when my nervous system would start to feel flooded, I would look at the midwife and I was like, she looks calm. It's all okay. Yeah. Right. Yep. That, that, you know, looking for that reassurance, like that steadiness and how helpful that is in keeping the system from being, you know, flooded by too much, you know, and letting it move through, letting it, complete itself. It's so, I don't know, just, it's really beautiful. I don't think I can quite express it other than when you were describing it just now, I could really feel how powerful it is that someone is stuck in this loop 
like a literal nightmare loop and that you slowed everything down and just walked with them through it one little step at a time and let it, let it complete itself. And then that was that they can move on to whatever might be next. Yeah. And the nightmare, it takes us back to the, the analogy or the metaphor of the, the child. Well, it's more of an analogy, the analogy of the, the child with having the nightmare and the, and the loving parent coming in and knowing the parent knows that the nightmare isn't real, that it's only real in the mind of the child. And that is where the security comes from. If I come in and I go, oh my God, there's a monster under the bed. The kid tells me there's a monster under the bed. Nah, there's, is there? I don't know. Let me look under the bed. Let me, oh my God, that happened. There was a demon. Oh my God, there's a, you know, I'm scared of a demon. Now I'm trying to reassure a child, but I don't know that it's not true. So I'm giving him false reassurance. You know, I'm kind of nervously being like, eh, it's going to be okay, but he can tell I'm not okay. Right. But it does bring it back to that the analogy of the child and the knowing that the dream is a dream, right? And if I know that, then I can be a reassuring space. But the only way I can know that is to go through my own experiences. I have to have my own dreams and I have to be willing to kind of like walk up in the nightmare and kind of poke, poke the ghost there, you know, to see that it's, it's only the stuff of thought. It's not, it's not tangible have to be able to look at the, to to try to be with my parts that are scared of that and yeah i think what you said was really important we get help for that right you may be as you're listening to this podcast right now getting help for that right now getting some support actually i believe that you are that someone out there is that they're hearing oh wait maybe the thing i'm running from is not a real thing to run from. Maybe it's something I'm scared of. And so I'm running from it, but my parts are, or maybe have parts that are scared of this thing, but maybe this is just something that I don't need to run from. Maybe I could just pause and take a breath. You know, maybe if we just pause and breathe right here and see what's here, right. And rather run from this thing that we're afraid of, but turn towards it. Right. So rather than someone having a recurring nightmare and then trying to figure out how to get rid of that nightmare, you know, how to, you know, avoid it, evade it, right? But what we did was let's turn towards it. Can we turn towards it with an openness? And it's kind of like letting that energy ground out into a wider system. It, it discharges, right? So I'll stop there. Yeah, so what that's bringing up for me, which feels really exciting and powerful is yesterday I was listening to a person talk about their like, happiness expert. I think they teach a class on happiness at Harvard. And one of the things they talked about as one of the paths, biggest impediments and therefore paths toward happiness is meditating on the thing you're most scared of. And for most people that in some way is related to their own death. And like, actually, you know, there's like this nine part Buddhist meditation where they look at images of corpses at different levels of decay. And that's how they, they meditate on that every single day. And that's how we sort of maybe have access to a sense of freedom, right? By, by sitting with, facing, being with the thing we're most afraid of. And of course, that harkens back to all kinds of things we've talked about here, right? And, you know, I'm just sort of thinking about how we make that like a titrated dose, how we can do that enough that our systems can handle it. 
this person, the, I can't remember his name, who had written this book about happiness, spoke about his students at Harvard to, for, for most of them, which is understandable, the thing they were most scared of was failure and creating like nine levels of failure. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I can see that I'm falling behind my peers, you know, then they're getting better jobs than me. And, you know, and he said when he brought up one of the ones he had made up, which was, I think my parents feel sorry for me, that one of the students just started crying. Like it was so much the thing they could barely handle. And he gave them the, to sit with each of these ideas just for two minutes at a time, two minutes a day for three weeks. And that they just, you know, they all found the freedom from this, this fear of failure and how, you know, I don't know. So I was going to, and I will include a link in the notes with pictures, but I wanted to show you Frank and I will let the that's the nine of swords. There's the waking up, right? And then this very intense image of the 10 of swords, which is this man laying face down on a beach with swords sticking down his spine. And the fact that this image, which is quite gruesome, that when I turn it over now, I think, yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm about to, you know, something is, is completing. It's moving yeah. through. It's, it's finishing whatever it's come here to teach me. I'm about to get it and go on to the next thing. Yay. Yeah. And yet it gets real sticky and intense just before it's all, all over with, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that those two cards I feel very interested in, the nine and ten of swords and that movement between, you know, waking up from the recurring nightmare, waking up from the nightmare, whether it be it could be recurring, and we could say that in life when we feel like we're suffering, you know, life can feel like a recurring nightmare if, you know, if we're, we're stuck in a pattern of suffering. And looking at that 10 of swords, I went from the one thing from the perspective of the nine, right? That could be very terrifying. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, that's what you're afraid of, right? I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of being murdered on a beach with swords through my head and neck and back and spine and so before that point it could be like oh my god the thing that is i'll keep pulling back from this black hole of death in which we don't know what is on the other side but of course on the other side of it where you're seeing it from we see it as the place of rebirth and renewal but something is going away and something is new is coming in it doesn't hold that fear but it also it, it can hold the energy of possibility and newness of opening and when we have a better relationship with death, that is what we see death of death of anything. We start, we can see it as a place of honoring grief and also as a place of renewal. So yeah, we can, there's a lot there. That's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait after, when but. you said there's a lot there, I was like nearly everything. Nearly everything. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly. all there. <laughs> we'll all end there. in the space of nearly everything. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's take a breath and just recollect together. Want to connect to you, the listener. Thank you for joining us on this ride today. And I have a care in case there are any of you who this might have touched on something for you. I know any 
talk about death can be big. And yeah, just feeling a sense of care and wanting to send you some self energy, some containment energy for any of the emotions that might have come up for you during the this episode, part one and part two of this episode. So I'm just connecting to you and sending you some really caring, loving energy right here. Yeah, that feels really good. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I appreciated you taking us sort of returning to that sense of care. I realized, and this is really lovely, is that my system was sort of in the space of like, I was scared to ride the roller coaster, but then I did it. And then that sense of elation was kind of where my system was like, woohoo, let's do it again. But learning how to, how to move from one to the other is, you know, best done with loads and loads and loads of compassion and care and taking all the time we need to get from one place to the other. Yeah. Yeah. All right, y'all. Well, another, another great, another great time (laughs) here with you and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.